0: Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com.
2: Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. Ah, uh, another episode of Brew Strong.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> live,
0: live from the, whatever we call this, my like yeah. noisy brewery, your... Uh, my,
2: my secret lair. Outside uh, Cascade Brewery in England. Uh, Tasmania, actually. Tasmania. Tasmania. Yeah. Right. This is my alternate layer. Yeah. I do the show here because there's 20 some odd
0: taps available for my enjoyment <laughs> while uh, I do the show. Because if I go at home, I have, no, I have zero taps at home.
2: Ah.
3: So it's all packaged there.
0: Oh. Yeah.
2: I guess I've got one beer on tap, two beers on tap at the moment. But I also have some very nice bottles that you can't see do the thing. Of mead here in front of me that I'm looking forward to drinking. I've, I've cracked into these a little early. The wife uh, was
0: like, "Hey, I'd like to taste some mead." So I'm like, "Well, all right, I'll, I'll open them." Yeah, today on the show we have Moonlight Meadery. But first, I wanted to talk about uh, our fine sponsor, uh, John Blyton, yes. and I wanted to mention the Anvil Foundry. I know you Indeed. have one, John. Yeah, it is uh, a really cool uh, all-in-one all-grain system. If you're Ready to give Almorain Brewing a try? Uh, you're going to want to try the Anvil Foundry or at least look at it. You streamline yeah. your setup. Uh, it is uh, uh, an easy to use, easy to clean, easy to store, all in one burner, uh, mash pod, boil, boil pot, cooler, everything all in one. Holds like one degree Fahrenheit. The uh, unit that will do Three gallon batches, which is what you're using, right, John? Right. That's like 275 bucks. It's it's
2: good. inexpensive. Yes, it's yeah, a very that's, yeah. That's,
0: that's a low low price for an all grain system. Yeah. System, right? Right. And then if you want to go to the five gallon, it's 95 bucks more.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great deal. Comes with a chiller. Comes. You can order an additional pump, but you don't need it. You to use the additional uh-huh. pump. I'm just saying, why don't I have one? Not <laughs> ah, send me one. I, 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 I see. could use a five
0: gallon. I'm just if I ask John Blickman, it ain't happening. If you ask John Blickman, you can get anything you want from John Blickman. I'm That's just true. saying, go go to uh, AnvilBrewing.com and order yours today. I'd love to be able to talk about it from 1st
3: uh, firsthand experience and tell you how great it is, but uh, you just got to listen to John
2: Blinkman on that. Right. Well you're looking you're looking you're excited I, about the five barrel size, I believe. Yes.
0: However, I I keep thinking to myself, I want to uh you know do a couple of little small matches at home in my garage yet.
2: Yeah, I really do. Yeah. And it's you know, a very satisfying way to spend the day, that's for sure. Or half I, a day.
0: I got some friends that uh, like own breweries and live around my area. <laughs> and we can all just kind of hunker down and do uh
3: uh you know uh small batch. You know, little, little five gallon batch. everybody bring a handful of hot pellets. and yeah yeah it'd be fun
0: so
2: Good indeed unfortunately i don't have an anvil uh foundry oh i thought you said unfortunately you don't have any friends in the brewing business but <laughs> foundry you're right right that's, that's a fact
3: it. well let me uh introduce you to
0: uh my dear friend uh Michael Fairbrother from Moonlight Meadery. He's also got a brewery, a signer. He does it all. Uh, And he does it all really well. He's, uh, you know, uh, Michael and I go back to the
3: homebrewing competition days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and judging days. Uh, Yeah. How you doing, brother?
0: Great. Thank you, Jamil. Nice to see you guys. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We go way back as well. I mean, um, homebrew cons back in the... Oh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I, re- I remember you were the one that called me out when I walked out of the women's bathroom at one conference.
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was I? I? had it there for myself. Is what I, you
2: know. <laughs> no, I came out with a confused look on my face and you is like, hey, wrong one, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: How many times have you accidentally walked into a women's restroom and gone to the
2: bathroom? I mean, completed the process and then left. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I've done that. Don't know that I've done that. I've done it at least three times. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean,
0: well, we had a
2: beer fest in uh,
0: Savannah, Georgia, where the lady took to the men's room and then took to the urinal. Uh, that that was definitely yeah. bizarre. Now that yeah. I've seen a number of times, especially like football games, things like that, it's like the line for the women's room is like three hours long. The line for the men's room is walk right in, and so women will go into the men's room. I understand that. I'm just saying that I have accidentally. It was accidental. I'm just <laughs> right. Right. It was twice at a Carl's Jr. where the Carl's Jr. had like their bathrooms arranged one way. there's Uh somewhere on I-5 where the bathrooms are switched. And I just, you know, ran in there, went to the bathroom, came out, washed my hands and washed my hands. And like a couple of women, you know, come out of the stalls or come into the thing. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, Wrong. (laughs) And then another one, again, this is always on I-5, where I'm like driving to San Diego or Los Angeles. And, you know, I'm one stop, real quick, get back in the car, go kind of guy. You know, I make it down in a couple hours. And then, and then, uh, and then uh, uh, there was a, a Burger King. And for some reason, I went into one of the bathrooms and I was there like, Peeing like a big horse, <laughs> and some woman came in to like clean the bathroom. She's like, Oh, 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 I hear that behind me. I'm like, Ah, oh. <clears throat> come back out. I'm just like, Damn, it was the women's room, <laughs> yeah you know, and nobody else was in there. I don't know. So it happens, it happens a lot. So yeah. don't you be judging John Palmer for the women's room? It's you know. It's kind of the
2: way things go. Yeah. Yeah, you know, beer conference, you kind of expect, you know, some, some confusion at times. But when I did it at uh, our my wedding rehearsal dinner, that was embarrassing. Um, the worst part is when you do it at home. You know,
3: come on. <laughs> you got a his and hers? You're doing well way better than I am. <laughs> uh,
2: nope, no his and hers here.
0: All right. Questions are already rolling in for you, Michael. Eric Eric asked, is Moonlight still distributed in the, I assume, the San Francisco Bay Area? We used to get them through uh, Half Point, but uh, don't know where to get them now for our taproom. So it's uh, Liberated Distributors. So uh, Liberated, short name, uh, Northern California. Okay. I'm thinking, you know, I've got a tap room. I've got a full restaurant, you know, with our kitchen, and uh, I can serve other stuff. I'm thinking I need to have some moonlight meat in, in my tap room. Us. Awesome. <clears throat> we can make that hot.
3: I appreciate that, brother.
0: Uh, you know, Mike and I, we've actually done uh, some collabs. We did Evil B which is still really popular. I haven't brewed it in a while, but uh, people really remember that with, with fondness. It's an uh, IPA with orange blossom honey. Quite delicious. And then uh, did, we do, did we do the bloody bee after that? Yeah, that's uh, oh, yeah. the Belgian quad I think we made. So they on with like a massive amount of honey. I think we're shooting for like 18, 20%, something like that. And then the thing stalled out in fermentation. And so I, we worked on it. It, it was, it was uh, orange blossom honey. It was, uh, you know, some malt and then uh, uh, blood orange. And so five years later, <laughs> because it, it went into barrels, because it, it, it just stalled out. Went into the barrels, I added bread our local bread that we have that we captured that will ferment up to like 18% or past 18% because most of the bread will stall out. And I had nothing else to really drive. in. it was just really syrupy sweet. And so we put in these wine barrels, we added this bread and, uh, it took like another three years. So the total of five years, it's been at least six years since we did this. I have kegs of this and like, once a year, I'll put on a keg of the Bloody Mead. It tastes like a um, you know, cross between uh, a really good English old ale and a mead. It's really fascinating. Um, it's quite nice. Cool. It's, I really enjoy it. We, and it sells. It sells, you know, we, it's 18%. So we do it in these tiny little glasses. So it takes a while to go through a keg, but well, we go through a keg. Awesome. A keg. Yeah, I um, some some uh, Yelp reviews from, I think, Japan, maybe, or China uh, on it. We yeah. also sent some overseas. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Japan, Korea, something like that. Probably Japan. It uh, may have gone to Singapore. I don't know. Uh, you know, they have an appreciation for something that takes five years, but, uh, you know, it really expensive. And <laughs> you serve in a tiny glass. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're good for that. Um, all right, let's start with, uh, Michael, how did you get started, uh, making mead? Way back 1995, I was just uh, about a month into my local homebrew club, Brewfree or Die. I'm still a member. Um been a lot of remote clubs of late, but I haven't been able to make as many. Um, so we had a joint Boston Work Processor, Brewfree Die summer holiday party, uh, and somebody offered me a sizer. And I had no idea what a sizer was. And I didn't want to embarrass myself and say that. So I passed my glass over. The gentleman poured me this stuff that I took one sip of and I lit up like a little baby. I was like, what is this? And he said, a, apple mead. I'm like, what's He said a wine made from honey? I'm like, I was a beekeeper. How do you make wine from honey? And he proceeded to tell me. And the very next day, I went home and I made two batches. And that right there, I could tell, man, that stuff's legit. That's eight, yeah. years, I think, in the barrel. Uh, we got some 20 year old Scotch brittles. But um, mm-hmm. so I fell in love with that flavor and self taught on how to make a lot of meat. I've read and lectured now at various colleges, and <clears throat> National Honey Board has paid me to um, present at their beer conference. Uh, we've won this year. We took Best of Sure, Grand Champion at the San wow. Diego International um, Beer Festival for Meat Insider. So I'm pretty, pretty, pretty damn happy with with how life has gone. I mean, we've sold little, almost two million bottles and cans at this point. Uh, so we branched out into cider about three, four years ago now, and we just started our Hidden Moon Brewing Company, uh, launching our beers. We've had a few contract brews uh, released so far. We have our um, <clears throat> IPA with honey, uh, pretty similar to the Heretic Evil I might. Had. <laughs> and then we've got my Russian, yes. throat, which is oh, nice. uh, copious amounts of uh, organic wildflower honey from Brazil.
2: Nice. That oh. sounds good.
0: So, uh, Have you made wine? I have made four batches of wine in the course of 25 years. I would not say I'm an expert. I would not say I'm even good. I would say my chocolate making skills are better than my wine making skills and I've made more chocolate from cacao nibs than I've done wine this point. But see the the great thing about you, brother, is that you uh you know you, you you don't poo-poo any of the any of the fermentation arts you're you're into all of it, and while you may focus on one more than the other. you love all of them right? yeah there's nothing i for me that i really don't enjoy a lot uh you right. to, to you name it huh? sauerkraut uh you know uh you know anything yeah they're all they're all great well, do you then, have a do you have a sense as to which which is the hardest to make of all those since you've done them all well i'd say it means the most unforgiving right so you need There's several common elements among the various types of fermentation, and Mm -hmm. it really boils down to treating your yeast perfectly so that it consumes the the sugar to make your alcohol. Mm -hmm. The challenge with with honey is your your type of honey can change and dramatically be different year to year, uh, batch to batch. So how do you try to find commonality? Like when you're buying uh, two row. Or, or uh, grain, you have a pretty good idea of it's going to fit into this window, um, and I've got a pretty good idea about my honey. However, I can taste when my suppliers blend a different blend of honey into it. Oh. You, know, you know that that can you know, like if they add some eucalyptus uh, flower honey to it, you've know, you got a whole <laughs> different, whole different ball of wax. And when the yeah. you know the colors change from. Like a water white to a medium amber, that's something customers notice as well. So you know, the the raw materials present a lot of hardship. Um yeast is crucial. I you know, I've really kind of honed my skill around one or two different styles of yeast or varieties of yeast to, to work with. Um and yeah, to make it consistently be amazing is what's, what's really hard. I and mean, if you look at how many competitions, mead competitions that I've entered over the last decade, I've taken medals at every one we've entered. So, you know,
3: you don't get to the
0: crop level by just winning it. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I like to think of myself as the seat of the pants brewer, me, make a wine, you know. Sider maker but there's a better I, I just time. throw shit on the wall and see if it sticks Your <laughs> inheritance. Yeah. well i was trying to say that but you know, I, 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 <laughs> uh, 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 it's you know it's hard because i really think of myself as an artist and i can't tell you how to paint like if you can paint the painting. um but i think of flavor in almost like a three-dimensional presentation like what does it taste like how does it feather on your taste buds you know what's the after effects? How does it feel? How, how does it how does it feel in the mouth? How does it make you feel afterwards? Oh yeah, all of that. You know what is the music playing in your head when you when you taste it? And if know, it's you, all, all part of it. There's art and science to all of this, and it's the combination of both that makes it so successful. Well, then one of the things you you mentioned, um, you're going completely off track of the outline I sent you. I'm just saying he's jumping all around. What's happening? <laughs> the, one of the things you mentioned was uh, you know from a water white to a, to an amber. You know, I I think most people when they think of honey, they're they're thinking of you know a bear filled with honey and it's got that amber color to it. And I I would bet you that the honey producers a lot of the time that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, um, you know, it needs to have this amber color, otherwise consumers won't want it. Whereas what you're looking for, uh, you know, uh, is is something where it is, you know, varietal, where it is, uh, you know, uh, annual crop, where it is clarity, of flavor, or you know flavors or or you know reducing some flavors so you don't want this amber colored you know squeeze it out of a bear honey you're looking for something particular what what is it that you're looking for in the honeys that you use to make beans are you looking for that lighter color Yes, yeah, so honey. Or are you looking for single source kind of like you know orange blossom, uh, misquiet, uh alfalfa, whatever it would be? Or yeah, it, how do you, you know, make your choices? It's really complicated. So it's all of that. Um, we do buy wildflower honey, but the only wildflower honey I buy at this point is uh, certified organic. So we're bringing in that organic honey from Brazil. That means there's at least a six mile radius. Around those beehives where there's no pesticide. There's all the, um, yeah. oh, the bees, you know, gather the nectar from the flowers, uh, bring that into their honey pouch, and then we um, pass it back and forth to get it to the consistency of honey, which the bees will eventually fan in the comb to get it to thicken up. But it's all those enzymes that are happening between the bees and, and the nectar and everything that gets honey to be what honey is. And so if there's pesticides there, that's going to go all downstream. Right. And so that's why we're, I think we're one of the only um, USDA certified organic meaderies in the country at this point in time. So we huh. have two meads that are, we've gone through a process. And when I say process, it's a process. They, they come in and it's government. They want to inspect how do you guarantee your honey's not contaminated from other honey on the same truck? Which, like, which, which means are those? Uh, so we have sensual, which is our straight up traditional wildflower. And then we have a uh, African blossom. So we brought in this organic honey from, um, uh, Zambia. Um, mm-hmm. so they're up there and they've got these hollowed out logs that they put into the canopy of the forest and the bees fill it up with honey and they reach in with their arm and scoop the honey out and mm-hmm. it's sustainable. So it gives these folks a way to make a living. And, um, Nice. Yeah, that's the dark honey. So you were asking me about the differences of honey and what do I choose? Which one I choose? Yeah. So the darker the honey, the higher the mineral content. And that mineral content may taste really nice when it's uh, sweet. But mm-hmm. if you ferment it to dry... It may be more bitter and more harsh, almost like this. It's almost like a tannin level
3: to that right, flavor. Profile. Right.
0: Whereas a lighter honey, when it's almost bone dry, can present almost like, um, like a white wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has a lot more uniqueness and delicacy to the flavor. Well, and it, I find that the darker the honey, the longer it takes to get to where I enjoy it. Uh, does 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 that that mineral content or something about that darker honey does does it uh, precipitate out it, you know and maybe that's part of the process over time or what's happening over time that makes that darker honey uh mead uh taste better what what's happening there so there's certainly some oxidation that's taken place over time, and I think that can that can help round out some of the flavors um I think honey meads in general tend to age a lot better than than um, than not. And I think it's because honey is a really good antioxidant in, in general. Mm. Um, the oldest meat I've ever tried was 60 years old. And, you know, it, it was just mind-blowing. Right? It, it, you, I couldn't even think of how to describe it um, other than... You know, it's not like I can draw a picture and say, here's how you get from here to there. It's, mm-hmm. it's really something else. The so one mm-hmm. you guys have in front of you that I did send you is fairly uh, well aged, which is do tell. So right. I got these 20 year old Scotch barrels from Scotland imported into the meter, uh, filled it up with, uh, I believe that's apple uh, sizer. hmm. Mm hmm. And yeah, you know, it's got all the complexity. So you get the hints of the, the the peat from the scotch, uh the barrel, almost the smokiness to it. You yeah. Know, this, you know, main reason I shared it is because my father's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> oh I want to see we got to just onto a, a vlog here. Um the podcast. And um, you know, it's just got I call it hang time, but the flavor just really just just sticks with you. It's just it's I, I really enjoyed it. It, it, it has, you know, uh, a, a really nice forward oak character, and it's yeah. got a, a bit of a spiciness to it. The apple in the background, the you know, the honey, the whole thing. Uh, the really Scotch character, very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I think that that's almost an advanced need for people. You know, I think. And I was, I was talking to my wife about this and meads we would serve here in the taproom. And I was like, well, you know, I think most people when they think mead, they think, oh, something sweet tastes like honey. You know, that's it. You know, not something, uh, you know, drier with, you know, all this complexity to it. Yeah, know, we make most of our best sellers are uh, uh, fruited meads, so not um, Particularly our apples, we've won... Uh, Pretty much a gold with every apple-based meat I've ever produced. And it's, it's really got to do with the locality of the apples to our, our facility, uh, which is less than a couple miles down the road. Or we can get it delivered within that day. So I'll press 10,000 bushels of apples bring me oh. 5,000 gallons of juice in a tank of trailer truck. And by the next day, I've got it in a tank with yeast and honey and mm-hmm. Way we're going yeah. so do you ever do any sort of adjustments on uh you know the the mineral content or the ph for your your meats or do you i mean how do you how do you approach this are you just putting water and honey and yeast and let it rip or yeah it's pretty much that um <laughs> so water supply is is crucial like
3: i'm
0: you know i'm in the midst of trying to Figure out the future for my company and where we want to be hosted at, and and you know I'm about to spin up a new company to buy a hundred acre farm, and it's far enough away that I'm you know worried about the water content and and how that's all going to come together. But at how I make me today is usually twenty five percent by volume honey, seventy five percent by volume water. And if I want to change that ratio, whether it be with juice, like our apple means don't usually have any water added whatsoever.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: But we usually target between 32% sugar to 40% sugar. So 32 bricks to 40 bricks is our typical starting point. And we try to finish most of our means between – 3 and 4%. So we're getting roughly 14% and higher uh, on our means. And when we make a session mean, you know, I'm, I'm brewing it like you might make a really big beer, but you want to double the size of your tank. So you're planting a smaller beer. So you're going to add water after the fact. Um, but it's what I've what I've learned. And we've talked about this before when we brewed together. It's, it's temperature control. It's yeast management. It's, it's literally the most crucial thing about sanitation.
3: Yeah. But yeah.
0: I mean, assuming yep. you have your art down, the, the, or the science down, and you know how to sanitize and know how to take care of all the ingredients, and you know, you need fresh ingredients, the fresher, the better, the local sources, the better. But, you know, just because it's local doesn't mean it's good. It's got to be good at first. Right. Um, and then the yeast, and, you know, all the money (laughs) money is in temperature control and fermentation kinetics and being able to track our systems. Like we've just started using, um, uh, I think it's brew monitor uh, to keep track of uh, real time analytics of of the fermentation. So keeping track of temperature, keeping track of um, what the actual gravity is, keeping track of how much oxygen levels are in the means because we're adding uh, nutrients Over the course of the first three days, and then seven days later, um, we have the final addition. And what that nitrogen is doing is giving the yeast an ability to stay in multiplication, so stay in growth mode um, instead of consumption mode. And so we're essentially creating this massive army of yeast that goes to work. And, And now I can track it, right? I can see exactly what's happening is that you know, as we add the nitrogen addition, you know, the the gravities doesn't go down as fast, but the cell counts are going through the roof, right? So that's, that's all critical to, to, to everything. And, and yep. it seems so yep. simple to me, I don't even know how to describe this stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I have been quite, uh, slovenly in my, uh, Time management. Time management, exactly. And I blame it on your means because I started before the show. I'm just saying. Uh, So we need to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about more about yeast right after
3: this.
1: back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer this is brew strong all right. back uh michael so we're talking uh fermentation
0: how critical it is you know uh to everything that that's fermented so whether it be beer, uh, cider, mead, wine, sauerkraut, you know, cheeses or whatever, uh, you know, a kimchi, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, the organisms present, the temperatures, the, the, the substrate that they're fermenting, all this stuff is, is critical. So I want to ask you a few questions specifically on yeast what uh yeast do you like to make uh, meats? what are what are your favorite yeasts that you'll use and then um, if, and for what reason yeah for for the last 10 years I've used exclusively Lavalin 71b um so we pitch at Ballpark about a gram per gallon um and then but you know, like I said we're spending a gram like, per gallon that's a ton a ton of yeast yeah yeah, and it's not cheap. but it, wow. And I don't reuse these ever from batch to batch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I explain it to people like this. You know, if I told my wife I was a $100,000 batch or whatever it cost was because right. I want to save a few bucks, she'd kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean just mm-hmm. uh, figurative. I think she would actually kill me. So, you know, I've really, you know, tried to figure out where – where can we do the best possible thing, right? How do, you, how do you take care of it at the absolute best? And this yeast is the canvas to which I know how to create all the flavors I know how to create. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the cranberry mead that you have,
3: it's
0: no need to uh This is, a, I believe, a Best of Show winner uh, in San Diego a few years back. I think it's my favorite. I don't know. I like them all, So, which one fun I'm drinking. Well, I've got a hundred different varieties. I think 60 in the tasting room. So Mm -hmm. I think think I'll have a hundred different favorites. Yeah, Yeah, I tend to like, but the same yeast can change the flavors of what Mm -hmm. you taste and how it tastes. Um, And when we play with oak, you know, that's just doing a whole new level of difference on top of it. Right. We've got, there's a Chattanooga whiskey distillery down in uh, Tennessee. Their head distiller used to work for Sam Adams up here in Boston. And so he was familiar with my brand and my needs. And called me up one day and he says, uh, you want to swap some barrels? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'll send us a few barrels. We'll send you some. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm like trying to worry about the cost of shipping these things down there and what's this all going to take. <laughs> and he lets it slide that they got a 50,000 square foot warehouse. I'm like, right, you got the shipping on this one. And, um, and it worked out great. They've, uh, we've been doing this several times now and, um, They've really taken care of us and I've gotten to try some of the whiskey aged in my mead barrels and, um, it's all cool. And this year, um, well not this year, start next year, 2021, we'll release utopian X, which is uh, 10 years in the barrel. So that'll be our yeah. oldest mead aged in Sam Adams utopias cast, uh, for 10 years. And, um, we're getting well, a, a cool and, and, and don't forget, uh, you know, where this was mentioned that, Perhaps you should send
3: a wee bottle
0: to uh, your friends out here on the west coast. I
3: didn't, I didn't <laughs>
0: just, I didn't just say, say that. This this stuff's gonna rock your mind. I mean, I haven't released it in five years. And um, you know, we're gonna have three two more releases after this. So batch fifteen, so fifteen years in the barrel, then batch twenty. Hopefully I'm long retired by then, but twenty years <laughs> in the barrel.
2: Wow, that would be nice. <laughs>
0: All right. So you use 71B, Lavalin 71B. What temperatures are you trying to ferment at? Um, so I like 67 as the base temperature. Uh, so for- Not 69? A lot of people like 69. I'm just saying. <laughs> we give it a three degree shift. So it'll go down as low as 64 and as high as 70. Um, but the ideal mid range is 60, 67 for this. Mm-hmm. Uh of course there's different yeast and each yeast likes its own its own comfort zone. And right. and it matters. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and the, one of the things uh I found when I'm trying to do a really high adjunct beer or uh when I was making meads and ciders, I found that the nutrient addition was critical because you know, there's very low fan, there's, you know, the mineral content's not the same as, you know, malt grown out of the earth, all this stuff. And you really needed to, you know, uh provide the, the appropriate nutrients. You what do you do as a nutrient addition for for your means? So, so we use uh fermate o, o for organic. Um so the fermate company or Lalaman makes several different versions of Formade O or Fermade um this Fermade K, which is kosher. Oh, for organic. Um, we switched up when we were trying to get our certification, um, and it's, it's, it's an organic form of nitrogen is what it really boils down to. Mm-hmm. So honey is is pretty devoid of any nitrogen. So like grape wine, grapes have plenty of nitrogen, malt has plenty of nitrogen in, in the grand scheme of things, but adjuncts, or honey in particular, uh, do not. And mm-hmm. so if the bulkier fermentation... Is coming out of honey, you're at a deficit, and so how do you how do you find neutrality on that? So we don't quite have the tools yet to do uh, yeast assumable nitrogen testing, um, but from trial and error over the last twenty five years, I've gotten a pretty good um, base level knowledge. I mean, I can it's like cooking; I can throw a pinch of this in our pinches of buckets these days, but you know, our biggest batch is thirty one hundred gallons. I, I will tell you this. If you have an Anheuser Busch uh, brewery near you, go and talk to them and say, hey, would you test would you test this for, for a fan or for zinc or for whatever you want? And those people, you know, at the brewery, they're brewers. They're lovely people. They, you know, they they love brewing and and they'll, you know, sneak off a couple of samples in the lab and test it for you. You know, most of the uh, guys I know that used to work there don't anymore. Mitch Steele, a good friend of mine, he used to home. Right, home. right. He, you know, he's uh, He's been around a bit. Uh, a lot of the people that, that you know, are there now, it's the same thing. They work there yeah. because they love brewing. And uh, especially, you know, in like a local eatery. Oh, and you'll sling me a couple of bottles of your fine stuff?
3: Sure. Right. You got a friend right
0: in the brewing department, so I'll give him a already signed I would, I would reach
3: out.
2: you yeah. know um, yeah. Jamil, I want to mention just for the for the audience to uh, as Michael's talking about nitrogen, uh this translates to amino acids yes. uh, and fan that we were as uh, familiar with in the brewing side. And uh, so, just wanted to clear that, clarify that for the audience.
0: Do you, do you do a timing of your additions, Michael? Uh, what I found on the brewing side is when I'm doing a super high adjunct beer, like you know, trying to drive something to 20 plus percent, um, when I'm adding those adjuncts, I want to add a little bit more, a little bit more of the uh, of the nitrogen. I want to add, you know, a little more fermented uh, you know, O ferment K. So you're step-feeding your um, brewing adjuncts into the brewing process? When we're doing something, uh, when we're trying to push something to like 20%, yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't have a lot of experience doing it that way. Uh, I've been told for 25 years the way I do it is wrong. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't stop me 25 years ago, and it's certainly not stopping me today. Um, yeah, so... For so the method that we follow, um, there's this um, what's it called? Uh, tons of method or Tonsa two now, so, so um, uh, Sergio from uh, Melovino put together this website, Meadmadebright.com, and it shows you a calculation of how much uh, nitrogen or nutrients to add and what schedule. And you know, since before he put up that website, that's the process we, we've pretty much followed. What do you think of the packaging, Jumil? Uh, I love it. <laughs> really nice. And the, the case it came in and everything, you know, really high quality. Yeah, of course, you've always always done stuff that way. You're not, uh, you're not a uh, do it cheap or do it quick or do it easy kind of guy. You're always, uh, you're always better um, rather than faster, cheaper.
3: <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, expeditious versus quick. Bigger, bigger better, bolder. That's that's you, Michael. Let's take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh,
3: additions such as uh, fruits, spices, or all that other stuff right after this.
1: Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, We're talking with uh, Michael
0: Fairbrother, our dear friend, uh, from Moonlight Meadery. And what's the brewery name? Hidden Moon Brewing. Hidden Moon Brewing. All right. Um, And, you know, he's been making a lot of great stuff for a lot of time, and uh one of the the meads that uh, he sent us was uh, caress which is a raspberry uh, addition to to the mead yeah yeah uh, i wanted to ask you uh how do you go about adding fruits and spices and you know other things to to your meads so most of the fruit goes in primary. Um, so whether it's whole or um, pressed or in a concentrate format, uh, it's going into the mixing tank. So we'll start the mixing tank with, with some amount of water in it. Then we pump our honey in. Uh, we warm the honey up to about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and at that point in time, if it's uh, in a juice format, we're adding the juice to the mixer. If it's whole fruit, like when we make our wild blueberry meat uh, and we're using six pounds of blueberries per gallon, the blueberries are frozen and then they go into the fermenters and then we bump the, the must or the meat on top of that. Um, so that's, that pretty much means that a 1,000-gallon tank is going to make 500 gallons worth of blueberry mead because you need that much space just to hold the fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardship with adding fruit in whole format is there's a lot of waste, so yep. there's a lot of uh, um unrecoverable meat at the end, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of head, you know, to push the, the cap down sure. the, the fruit to allow the nitrogen or the CO2 hooks to stay. You yeah. have to really yeah. push hard to when you're through. getting a lot of head, you have to push hard,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 um, yeah. That, that it's the mead talking. I, don't know. Yeah. I love the color of this uh, this mead. Uh, you know, you're yeah. using a ton of fruit or a ton of juice in this, right? Yeah, I like to go big. I really. Yeah. You guys were just talking about it. it's. I want the flavor. So my inspiration for this was like a dessert style. You know, after with a let's say a German chocolate cake, right? Oh yeah, that's so oh, delicious. Top, you know, and this is this is my favorite.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I I think it's worth pointing out to the audience that, you know, versus beer. no, Uh, No, that, you know, in beer, we often talk about adding fruit to the secondary or in your case, you do a separate fermentation of the fruit and then blend the two together, you know, mm-hmm. the beer and the and the fruit uh, wine. Whereas in mead, you know, fruit and mead are all or the honey are all simple sugars. So there's no need to separate the fermentations in the case as in the case of beer. In the case of beer, we're working with maltose, a disaccharide um, and versus the simple sugars like fructose, fructose and glucose in mead it's all fructose and glucose, mm-hmm. a little bit of sucrose. So, yeah, I think that's one interesting difference in the fermentation styles of the two beverages.
0: And I find that uh, flavor-wise, um, you can almost get more of a, I, I term it as a jelly-like flavor if you add fruit in secondary. So uh-huh. it doesn't taste as much integrated. Um, now, the opposite's true for any spices that I add. Okay. Spicing always takes place post-fermentation. So usually the meat will be racked and clear before I, I start to spice. And at that point in time, I'm I'm running a clock on the spices. So usually a maximum of 72 hours is my meat in contact with the spicing, whether it be coffee, chili peppers, cinnamon, vanilla, uh, star anise. Uh, I can't even think of them all. Um, some ingredients we can't legally use like I bought some pea blossoms. Um, yeah, not a lot. <laughs> so not listed under the general acceptable, uh, ingredient list. And the grass. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's always fun to hear that after you've spent money on stuff, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I wanted to create this really cool looking purple mead. And uh, the answer was no. Hmm. Bummer. Yeah. That sucks. Send me some. I'll, 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 I'll take that. <laughs> um,
3: Let's see. Uh,
0: can you share some tips? Uh, Johan was asking, uh, can you share some tips on how different it is to judge beer and me? Yeah, well, the beer world has done a really good job at trying to quantify styles and what makes a particular style Judgeable, right? So American Porter or American IPA or a lager, you name the style, it is, there's a defined category. Now uh, If you jump to the mead world, there's like four. <laughs> and so, you know, and it's almost infinite number of variations to mead that you can have. Right. Um, and so the mead world's tried to quantify it by dry, semi-dry, semi-sweet, you've got uh, fruit, traditional method which are needs with spices and an open category which is basically anything and everything else mm-hmm. um, and oaking levels can be moderate to mid to none you know, so you can have historical needs which are lumped under open mm-hmm. and what the judging aspect of it should be the same which is judge the totality of the beverage in front of you is it good? Do you need no. to taste all the elements? No. Does it taste integrated and well-balanced? And, and like the raspberry mead, Jim, you were just trying, right? Uh, no. You know, I should know better after 25 years to double-check before you submit it into a competition. Submit it as dry. That is not where even close to dry. And they just unclicking the entry Well, uh, Now, if I was judging this as a judge, and it came to my table, i tasted. it. I'd say, okay, something happened here. Can we? Can you right. give me any more information now on the entry slip? I crossed off dry, but I put down sweet in hopes that somebody mm-hmm. might have said, "Hey, by the way, I, I think there's a mistake." Uh-huh. Didn't then work at the right table. Then <laughs> the judge as such. My fault. Right. No problem. It's it's sweet with a fruit acid to balance. That's sweet. which I think is. It's brilliantly balanced. I think it's, you know, delicious. And, uh, you know, I I think uh, people that are into wine or meat or cider would really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. That that brings up another question. Uh, What is the best temperature to enjoy mead? Is it one temperature? Is there like a range of temperatures? or how How should you enjoy mead? So I like it depending on the outside world. So when it's summer here in New Hampshire, uh this year we started offering slushies. So we literally mm-hmm. freeze the mead uh to the point where it's colder than ice. And um mm-hmm. uh, it's amazing. It's literally you can drink too much and, and you need to stop. Um <laughs> I've never but, too much, drank too much drinking too much. The um but, but like wintertime, I'll enjoy that meat like you just had uh at cellar temperature, usually mm-hmm. You know, maybe room temperature, but I never – I don't mull the meats that I make because mm. it doesn't take a lot to boil off the alcohol, and I work the hardest to make that alcohol taste so smooth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that, that that's really a, a danger zone, and why I take that danger after taking so many months to make this, uh, what I call, a wonderful liquid. And um, But like when I'm in Arizona doing tastings or Texas, Florida, it's it's usually at a, at a pretty good chill level to it. Mm-hmm. But the colder you make it, the less honey you taste. So, you know, I, I, I like to joke around. There's a reason Budweiser advertises or mandates their beer must be sold served ice cold. They don't want <laughs> you to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> what about the uh, uh, brewing of boche? Uh, you know, I was also asking, never tried one, but I'm interested in the process, process and possible taste results. I will tell you this. Uh, uh, i can't i can't remember who was who sent me the uh boche from uh the cia which is a the uh homebrew club out in texas and uh i thought it was brilliant I thought it was absolutely delicious looks like we lost michael here and um have you had a boche uh john i don't think so um it was kind of smoky, caramelly uh, meat. So they, t- you, you take the honey and you essentially kind of, you know, burn it, and uh, it adds a ton of flavor to the to the overall meat. I thought it was one of the best things I ever had. Was this this boche from, uh from, uh, you yeah. know, Michael? Have you have you ever have you ever done one of those? Yeah, we have. Um, for, what
2: is a boche? I don't know.
0: Oh, that's great <laughs> So, boche means uh, mead with uh, honey that has been caramelized and or burnt. Um, so, okay. it's the process of heating up the honey to the point where it's almost becoming like caramel, um, and then using that. Now, the best example I've ever had was when I judged at the ANC in Australia. God, it's going back a few years now, but um and this gentleman has since gone off to create his own meter. Uh, I believe it's called Erosion Meter, And um oh, so screw we- him. He went off and did his own thing. So what he th- when he talked to me and he shared his recipe with me. Um He he created these little, like, caramel dots on a piece of paper. So, like, every 15 minutes, he was measuring the color and how the color was changing over time. And to me, it reminded me of the candy that we used to sell when I was a kid, which was, like, this sheet of paper with different colored candy dots on it. I don't remember what they were called, but it was a long time ago. But I I found it fascinating to think of. You could then take what I've been doing for so long in a whole new direction and try to to work with that. Now, in general, I usually find bochets are burnt and taste horrible. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So there's a fine fine line between right. and honey and burning the crap out of it, and 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 you you can't recover once you burn it. Right? Yeah. So there's too much, and then there's not enough. But the, the ideal is just enough. So mm-hmm. when I made my first boche commercially, what I did was I took twenty percent of the honey, and I used that almost like a spicing element. So 20% of the honey for the batch, I caramelized and basically had a room full of people watch me. And liquid honey boiling is extremely, extremely dangerous. This stuff lands on your skin. It's to so cool. right. So you're taking the full thick honey, you're putting it in a kettle and you're trying to boil it and reduce it. Yes. It's, yeah, I mean, you can't reduce it much further. You end up with a solid brick. How's that work? <laughs> I mean, do you just like kind of feather in the temperature? Or? Yeah, well, so you stir in the daylights out of it to keep it from just scorching, uh, you know, so I've got a, a 30,000 BTU burner that I used to use. To, he got some bourbon barrel um, um, that I used to use in my homebrew setup uh, for doing uh, decoction mashes. And so, you know, it is very fine control. And I basically put a half, um, you know, 15-gallon, Pot onto that, and I put in about twenty pounds of honey, and then just let it rip. And you know, about forty-five minutes later, I had it boiling pretty vigorously, and globs of honey are flying around. <laughs> and um, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm good enough. And um, yeah. then I add water at that point, trying to bring that honey back down. But you know, most my honey method, treatment method here at the apiary is no heat. You know, we do not mm, it right, down. right. So we're trying to save all that aromatic and um, the natural beauty of that honey flavor that, you know, the bees have worked so hard for, um, specifically with our organics. You, we don't want to come anywhere close to it with, with anything. That, yeah, I mean, we've got to certify that we've actually cleaned the tank before we put the water in the tank course we do that it would go back <laughs> you know, so the government doesn't want to hear of course you know they want you we have to sign off on log sheets and everything that we've actually done this and track the honey from point a to point D. Mm-hmm. and how do we prevent it from becoming commingled once it's been bottled and I'm like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> the bottles break the dump <laughs> we're not sucking the weed back up but um yeah bouchers are are really i think the, the biggest concern i have is safety and trying to boil honey like that it'd be like Jamil, imagine if you had um, malt extract and you wanted to reduce that down in in size and complexity. Huh. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's dangerous, right? It's it really is dangerous. It's like you know, if we lose an employee or two, you know, how did it taste? That's that's the concern right there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, of course I'm kidding. But this one I got from the CIA, um, I thought it was stunningly good. Nice. Yeah, it, it became, like, kind of my favorite meat style all of a sudden. I'm like, ooh, all right. I didn't think it would be good. It was, you know, but uh, just, you know, it, it's a, the caramel, the light smoke. I thought this was done brilliantly. I thought it was, it was perfect. Um, you know, speaking of spicing and all this, uh, let's see here. Um, Derek was also asking, he said, uh, can we, as he says, uh for distribution, he says, uh, I can see that I can get bottles here, and we also get uh, draft here again. We had Kurt's apple pie on draft when we first opened. It was hugely popular. So we can make that happen. So my email is Fairbrother, so my last name, at moonlightmetery.com. Uh, you tell me what kegs you want. I can put them up on the dip system. And uh, we do have a brand manager in Northern California that's Edge uh, Consulting. Um, so we work with them to help get it to bars and stuff.
3: Happy, happy. To,
0: I mean, I've been trying to find a what I call a, a feed-on-the-ground distributor in Northern California for a long time. Uh, we were with Half Pint Cider, um, and that it didn't pan out as well as we'd hoped. And we haven't been able to recover. Or re- recoup other than with Liberated Distributor. I mean, we're doing so well in Los Angeles. I got my son living out there now. He's my sales rep for LA County uh, and San San Diego. So he does all Southern California and, and our sales are up almost tenfold. So, you know, we're real happy with the houses we're at down there, but, you know, we're trying to find the right house for us Long term for Northern California, because we want to get our beer in Northern California. You can go into, I think, uh, Total Wine or Bethmo or Total Wine, I know for sure, and buy my beer in Southern California. So just none of it up, uh, up where you guys live. Northern California is the most important part of California. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree, John?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we it's, it's hard to get Pliny down here, so. There you go. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you where you can find great mead making ingredients and mead making advice is our good friends at Brew Chatter. Oh, uh, yes. They are, you know, uh, Reno adjacent to in Sparks. Uh, and Sparks is the better part of Reno. Uh, let's all just admit it. Uh, and they have all the ingredients you want to make a great mead, make a great melamel. Make a great uh, boche, whatever it would be, and advice. Uh, Lovely people, Josh and RJ there at Brew Chatter. They have just an amazing shop with lots of lots of great advice. They've got a little bar in there if you want to go have a beer while you're shopping for your homebrew ingredients. Uh, A lot of fun good people. Check them out. uh, Brewchatter.com. They're there um, uh, just outside of Reno. Reno's a lovely place to go and visit. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you should. All right, let's take a short break. When we come back, you will
3: uh, finish up with our good friend, Michael Fairbrother from Moonlight Meadery, right after this.
1: Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys brew strong
2: all right we're back we're talking uh with michael fairbrother
0: from moonlight meadery and hidden moon brewery and does the society have a different name or um, it's, all yeah, it's under the hidden moon brand at this point in time it's um for tax purposes in the state of New Hampshire, it ended up saving me, I think, almost a dollar a case. Did they tax you in, in New Hampshire? I thought New Hampshire was uh, no taxes or death. Yeah, uh, isn't that the uh, motto of New <laughs> Hampshire? Good for or die. Don't tax me or die. <laughs> the um, they they don't want us to say it's a tax, but it's it's a excise uh, fee or tax. Um, but yeah, they charge. Beer, $0.30 cents a gallon, and they charge anything that's made under my winery license at 5% of sale cost. So $0.30 cents a gallon is a way better deal um, <laughs> for for the breweries than for the poor wineries. But when I tried to explain it to the wineries, it just was like, oh, this is how it always works. You can't change it. I'm like, uh, t- tax tomatoes at one rate and cucumbers at another. <laughs> All yeah. right. I'm warning. I'm warning our affiliates down the line that we're going to go long. Hey, yeah, you know, we have Michael Fairbrother on here. We're gonna we're going to go a little long. I right, just saying. All right, adjustments. Have you you know? Let's say you've made a meet and it doesn't turn out exactly the way you want you know it's not uh it's, it's, the acidity is lacking you know it's not as bright or the sweetness is is missing or it lacks body or aroma how are you dealing with that do you just toss it and start over or do you are there adjustments you can make to to you know rescue of a, a fallen mead Yeah, it really it's it's changed for me a lot over the last twenty five years. So twenty five years ago, I made my first one of my first batches of meat was a pineapple meat because you know the the meat I tried was was apple. I said, well, I like apple, but I love pineapple. So let me make a pineapple sizer type thing. So just pineapple juice and honey. But the problem is it fermented dry, and the reason pineapple juice tastes so well to balance all that acidity is it's sweet,
3: right?
0: And so. With no sweetness left, I had all that acidity. And um, not knowing what I was doing, but having read Charlie Papazian's books, and I'm like, all right, I just need to put it in a keg and let it sit. Well, over the course of the next five years, that may change fairly dramatically. So, <laughs> just wait five years. Is yeah. that your advice? <laughs> that was one option. Um, but where I come at it from now is, let's say I miss the mark and my finishing gravities too low, right? So... I like it a little, a little more sweeter, but it's a little drier. What do I do? Mm-hmm. I don't try to add honey at that point in time because that's going to change the mouth feel of the mead. And so your best bet is to make another mead mm-hmm. and push higher and then black. Uh, uh nice. So blending is, is, you know, I think of it from like the the artists who make like canty home. And you know, that the sweet and tart and, and all that balanced flavors. And I'm pretty sure both of you guys have tried some of my Russian Imperial brackets at the Brewing Network events that I've been to over the last several years. And so those were that was a, a Russian Imperial that I made with like sixty pounds of honey in a 20 gallon batch. So stupid amount of honey. Right. And then I had to pitch it on top of some uh uh Flanders um, uh, yeast to get that, uh, to dry it out further. And then, you know, to get some sweetness left, I'd blend it with an orange blossom meat at the end, kind of get it to where it was this sweet tart, interesting combination of, a, you know, you had the elements of the stout, you had the elements of the mead, you had elements of a sour and everybody's was like, what the hell did you do? And how'd you make this right? And I'm like, well, you really can't make these. And it's going to take like eight years to make, but this is how you do it. you know, so it's, um, I consider this all the in the art form of what do you do once you get there? And that's, I think, what I do really the best, which is taste as we ferment and go through the process and try to see in my mind where it's going and where do I want it to be? You know, and, and do I hit the mark? And so, you know, I don't try, I, I tell customers every day that I don't try to make the same meme ever twice. I just try to make the same Ballpark. I, I want to come in the same ballpark. So you say you I might like the last one better or the next one better than this, but it's it's. I know it to be this. Yeah. And you know, our you know, for the stores that we sell in now, it's not. You know, I don't have that much luxury anymore, right? I can't come in with, let's say, a crust that didn't have all that raspberry flavor that you were just trying. Had like a light hint of it. That's not good enough, right? So I can't. I can't miss the mark so much that people don't recognize yeah. it for what it, what it is. And that makes my job harder, right? So, that, so I've, I've really had to um, become rigorous at, you know, how do we measure and check the quality of ingredients coming in? What's the bricks of the concentrate? What's the acceptable levels that we'll take for X, Y, and Z? You know, it's like when I got that honey that had some eucalyptus into it, I'm like, <laughs> he goes, oh, do you like that flavor? Everybody likes that flavor. I'm like, no, because this wasn't
3: here before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you really have more challenges with honey. You know, being such an agricultural product, uh, you know, a lot more inconsistency and a lot more uh, variety, batch to batch, yeah, you're to grower than than On the
0: on the frivolity of the of the bees, because. Everything's yeah. agriculture, everything in beer, everything in yeah. wine, everything in mead, everything in sizer. They're all agricultural products with right. variability. I think the, the, the problem you get with mead is, well, the bees get a bee in their bonnet and then, you know, they go
2: off and do whatever they want. Yeah.
0: Mean, they,
2: right. There's an added level of complexity in, in <laughs> sourcing honey than in sourcing malt.
0: Okay, so Dan is asking, uh, I've made a couple of five-gallon melomels with 20 pounds of honey, eight pounds of mixed berries added to the primary. How long is too long to keep it in the primary? Well, with the right nutrient levels, about three months is about the maximum time needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without that uh, nutrients, it could take a year or two. That amount of fruit is pretty light, Uh, so that's less than two pounds per gallon. Um, It depends on your fruit, too. So if you're using raspberries and actually have the seeds, you're going to get some oak tannin notes out of the seeds, depending on Mm. how long it sits there. Um, So let's say peaches. I I got some peaches, and I tried to... uh, part of the skin's off the edges of the peach and, and, and use like, as much fresh fruit as I could get from a local orchard. Mm-hmm. Well, that means you got a really nasty aroma to it. I mean, it just it was worse than body odor type of aroma. Right. The sulfur and the sulfur stone fruit uh, can be really, uh, really off-putting. Yeah, uh, it doesn't fade very well. Well, and Eric's—I'm sorry, Dan's also uh, asking—any pro tips for making a sizer? You do a lot with apple. Uh, What what are kind of the key components of making a sizer? So, for us, we don't like to get any um, pressed apple juice that has any sulfites or sorbates added to it. So it's just uh, unpasteurized, uh, just apples. Mm-hmm. I do tend to like a lot of dessert apples in most of the sizers uh, that we make. So Gallas, Pippins. Pippins not really a dessert apple, but add some tannin. Um, Red Delicious, maybe some Cortland's, not too many Macs. Um We have done heirloom varieties of cider before as well. You can get some really tan- high tannin levels in some of the heirloom ciders. Um, here in New England, you know, I can go as far east as <laughs> West is uh, Western Massachusetts, and some of the apple orchards out there have have plenty of, of unique varieties. I knew my homebrew club was getting some heirloom cider custom press from uh, this past weekend um, with my new farm. I'm hoping it has already 12 tr- uh, trees on it, but I'm hoping we expand that to several thousand uh, trees so that we can have... Uh, different varietals of apples to grow and harvest ourselves uh, for our, our own um, cider-making uh, facility. But um, a lot of that's some future stuff. We're, we're going to keep the London Dairy location open for the foreseeable future. Um, but if I can add a destination location that has a farm to – my, my wife came up with the name – Beehive to Bistro um, <laughs> the type of effect. Nice. I like that. Yeah, it's you. You ought to see the pine floors in this house. There, some of them are 28 inches wide. Uh, the boards, because uh, you know, built in 1753. Uh, the inside of the house, meticulous. Outside, I have to come and visit you, brother. Yeah, uh, I have a four-bedroom Airbnb, bread and breakfast type of facility on the property we are going to put in a 10-barrel brew house. Uh, we're allowed to have a nano brewery on the farm, uh, and the nano brewery size limits 2,000 barrels per year. So that doesn't look quite <laughs> nano in my book, but uh, <laughs> 2,000 cases. I'll, I'll be happy with that kind of I'll new. come and we'll collab. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. On the do-tell, you, you barrel-aged that. So do you have any tips for people about barrel-aging uh, a mead? Time takes time and, um, the longer you can let it go, the better. Yeah. Uh, I tend to start most of my needs around 14% alcohol, um, upwards of 18% utopians at 18. Um, this one's, I think around 16 per se, it might say 14 on the label. I don't always keep track when I throw some of this stuff out there, but, uh, <laughs> um, I love what the barrels can do for apple. Um, we do all of our cider as barrel aged. So we have little apples, which is a six and a half percent aged rye uh, sanitized fooders. So our fooders are, uh, don't know what a fooder is, it's essentially a very, very large oak barrel. Um, these ones we have are 3,100 gallons each, and we have two now. So what we do to clean and prep them before reusing them is to run rye whiskey through the CIP port um, to rehydrate the, uh, the oak and kill any critters. Um, and then we drain all the rye whiskey out. Um, so it runs on a continuous loop for about an hour, an hour and a half. Probably about 15 gallons of rye whiskey going through it at any given point in time. Well, you don't want to put your head in the barrel when you're <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever used hops in
3: mead? I have not. Oh. Well, there,
0: 101 types of mead. I'm just saying, maybe there's a hoppy mead in your future. No, I, would go, I would go dry, as dry as possible, and I would use something fruity. I'm just saying. Lemon dropsy off mead. Offsy
2: Michael, what's, uh, what's the most unusual yet successful mead you have made in terms of, you know, a strange flavor whim that hits you, but, man, it was good.
0: About a couple. So we do a star aisk mead. Um, So, usually I've got to really love the meat or I'm not making it again. Right. I make them for me. It would be very clear about from the get go when people say, oh, you got to do this, like pumpkin meat. No, not going to (laughs) happen. One drink of pumpkin meat, it's never going to happen. Yeah. So, the star and East flavor is to me a licorice and um, it's unique. Um, had it not won a gold medal, I probably would have just dropped it, but customers wanted it. Um, so, you know, it's not always about me. It's, you know, so customers matter. I'm glad you didn't send it to us because I, it doesn't sound tasty <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. If people breweries. like licorice, I, I, yeah. I think it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. people who like licorice, buy it all up and enjoy it. It's probably amazing. Yeah. I tend to like my stouts. Um, so I do love my beer, <laughs> but, um, you know, the ciders have been really fun for me because, you know, like we get a tanker trailer truck, a juice delivered, like almost 7,000 gallons. And, you know, it takes about an hour and a half to pump that much cider out of the truck at full speed. Wow. And, um, you know, we do add uh, enzymes to the cider to break down any sugars because we don't want to clog up our, um, cross flow filter with, the uh, enzyme or not enzymes with the pectins um so i still do small small batches we have a, a society where you can get you know i think three or four bottles from you once a quarter and they're the super rare ultra limited stuff that i make really for this club do you, do you have uh, like new stuff coming all the time you know, what's what's new come from Moonlight Meadery? Do you have uh, new stuff coming from uh, for your club or yeah, anybody did, get all, it? Or? all the above. Well, back when the COVID hit first heavy, I shut down my whole team. So that, you know, sitting around by myself, I got busy making some new meads. Um, but we have a new one in the works right now. It's going to be called Brunch. Um, it's a um, maple and coffee mead mm. um, with orange blossom honey. mm, mm. So really rich, strong coffee notes. The maple's over the top. I haven't tried it. It's been about a year in the making. I do have a couple that I did collabs on with uh, uh, Timo and his son from, um, I can't remember the name of his meadery from Sweden, I think. Norway? Maybe Norway. Um god, they all was gonna kill me if i not remembering that <laughs> stuff.
2: Um, it's the mead.
0: Yeah, yeah or the beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do like doing the collabs. So I was supposed to brew over in uh Switzerland this fall and that all got canceled. Um but uh Jonathan Porter and I do a beer every year, um buzzworthy, uh down at Smog City. And I'm gonna I'm the uh I've got a wholesaler license so I can actually buy my beer from him and then <laughs> export it around the country to my wholesalers. So,
3: mm, nice. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that for the first time this year. you so, mail? we can we can do a collab again. And, uh, I can just buy it, your name on it sell it in New Hampshire for you. You don't have to deal with the distributors I do. That's um, great. We, we can do fun stuff that way now. I've got more stupid licenses than you can imagine. <laughs> a wine manufacturer, beverage manufacturer, beverage vendor, and then federal licenses, wholesaler, importer. And wine manufacturing. You know, you know what's great about uh, most other countries in the world is if you have a license to produce alcohol, they pretty much give you anything to do with alcohol. You can, uh, you know, import alcohol. You can distribute alcohol. It's whatever you're creating it. Just handling it is no big deal. So you automatically, you know, anybody who has a uh, like a brewing license, the rest of the world. I'm like, well, can you do that? They're like. We can do anything we want once we, you know, uh, we <laughs> actually make alcohol. So just, like, buying it and reselling it is no big deal. You know, I, I think the U.S. could learn a bit from, from that. Uh, Pi ben is asking, uh, what is the simplest yeast to avoid hot mead? USO5 is the, is the option? Or, I mean, or, or is it, like, fermentation and uh, yeah, nutrients? I, I would fermentation, nutrients temperature, you know, all that, um, not necessarily changing the yeast. Yeah, temperature control is where you're, where you're out of control. That's going to cause you, your hot nose. So, you know, it's, it's, it becomes harder depending on where you live and what your environmental situation is. But if you don't have a way to regulate the temperature of that carboy or that fermenter, you've got to find a solution. Whether mm. it's you build a jockey box and you ferment at a, a nice, cool, slow temperature. But what's happening is your yeast is creating is stress and it's creating fusel alcohols because it's fermenting too fast. And the reason it starts to do that is because the hotter it gets, the faster it ferments, and it forms this nice chain reaction, exothermic, uh, I think is a technical term for it. And uh, it basically means all shit's going to hell and you're going to have to suffer the consequences and, and wait till a very long time to get something that's really enjoyable. Now, there are wines that are commercially made where they particularly want that to happen. Now, those wines in particular need to age for extended periods of time. They usually oak, to get those flavors to really kind of mellow out. Um, but that's what gives some of those. Wines. And esterification of those higher alcohols into fruity flavors over right. time. Yeah. And uh, Johan was asking... Uh, he appreciates the answers. He was saying, uh, any advice for piments? You know, the amount of fruit versus juice, types yes. of fruit versus versus juice. For the most part, I like to go. You know, any of my fruit meads, um, it's usually seventy-five percent by volume. So, you know, fruit juice makes up that seventy-five percent, and twenty-five percent would be the honey. Um, that can give you a pretty really sweet mead. Um, so you got to be careful. Um, if it's going to be too sweet, you, you probably do need some sort of lesser ratio of honey to, to make sure you're within the range. And what I'd strongly recommend is make half-gallon batches first. You know, take a half-gallon growler or a growler of 64 and make a gallon size batch. You know, I had as many as 60 growlers in my basement fermenting. At a given point in time, at the same time, so I could measure all the different varietals of types of honey, types of fruit, types of you know what was the, what was the yeast doing, what was you know. So I had controlled experiments, and I could run it then by like Gordon Strong, Susan Rood, uh, Kurt Socks, Steve Fleddy at National Homebrew's Conferences in in a club room or you know, hotel room is, a hey, try all these. And I give them, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, Hawaiian peppercorn mead or, you know, lahua honey from Pennsylvania, or uh, that one, like butter honey from Pennsylvania. Now, these are honeys you don't see in the commercial scale, but, you know, <laughs> they, they all taste unique.
3: And, well, you know, and
0: and since you don't have to boil it or anything like that, making a growler of mead is pretty simple, right? Yeah, if you're making uh, 25%, so 8 ounces of honey or 16-ounce jar of honey, shake it up into the growler, get it all dissolved in there, throw in your packet, put on an airlock on it, you're in business in
3: 15 months.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, there's the true reason why Michael Fairbrother has started Moonlight Meadery. Supplying spectacular means across the world is because it's easy, and that's, that's the path you went down. Yes, right? Certainly easier than software. <laughs> <compared. laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to see you, brother. Uh thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Uh I can't tell you how much we appreciate that you sent us these four uh delicious yeah. bottles of mead. Uh John, and I both enjoyed them. Uh and a number delicious. of yeah. people enjoyed them as well. If you're out for uh Enjoying meads, I would seriously suggest you search out uh, Moonlight Meadery. Uh, Michael's made some amazing things that are best of show winners that you can find. Just ask. Ask your local bottle shop. Ask your local taproom if they can source you some Moonlight Meadery. Uh, You know, it is out there. Uh, They just need to want to have quality stuff. you you tell them that you know if you want to have quality stuff as well check out the Anvil uh, Forge Uh, really cool simple brew system I'm looking for mine in the mail John yeah Um, well, we'll get it we'll get it in the mail uh I, I, you know, if I get it, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to, uh, you know, uh, give it a, a square evaluation and uh, promote my thoughts
2: about it. Very good.
0: So, in, in the market for a 10-barrel brew house. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Blickmanengineering.com. Check them out. Check out our good friends at uh, BrewChatter.com as well. Uh, you know, all good folks that have supported this program and made this possible for the last couple of decades. Uh, you know, there you go. So I check it out and, uh, you know, uh, keep on brewing, make some me, make some cider, make some wine, you know, ferment, have fun. Uh, we, we love it. And we hope you do too. Until then, everybody,
2: brew strong, brew strong, everyone. Cheers, everybody.